to Tuned to Yesterday, broadcasting programs from radio's golden years. I'm your host, Mark Livonier. Coming up in this hour, investigative adventure. Later on, we hear the adventures of Frank Race from 1949. But right now, Frank Sinatra is Rocky Fortune. In the first episode of the series from October 6, 1953 on NBC, the story called Oyster Shucker at the 50 Fathoms. Frank Sinatra, transcribed as Rocky Fortune. Sinatra, who stars as that footloose and frequently unemployed young gentleman, Rocky Fortune. We start out together, but sooner or later we reach the fork in the road. Usually sooner. You take last week. The employment agency sent me out on a job as an oyster shucker. But somebody tried to serve me up on a half shell with a real crazy cocktail sauce. Blood. Pardon me, is this the uh, 50 Fathoms Clam House? Yes. Is there something I can do for you? That's the best offer I've had all day. We'll have a table in a minute. Would you care to look at the menu? What's the menu you've got that you haven't got, baby? A price list. If you'll excuse me, I'm busy. Now, wait a minute. Don't get sore. I work here. I'm the new oyster shucker. I'm Rocky Fortune. Well, you'd better go around to the kitchen, Mr. Fortune. Just call me Rocky, huh? And I'll call you two or three times a day. Don't bother. Why not? For one thing, I've got a boyfriend. Now, why would we let a little thing like that come between us? Maybe because he's standing right behind you. Oops. Exactly standing behind me. It's more like all around me. This joke is six foot four, two hundred pounds on the hoof, and broad enough to go through the middle of a revolving door. And I can't figure a girl like this with this girl. She's a real sweet little girl, like somebody's kid sister. Only she's wearing a knit dress, and she's got a figure that's given the warp and the woof a hard time. I get a glimmer when she introduces me to the bruiser. Mr. Fortune, this is Mr. Barney. He's the manager. All right, Fortune, get back to the kitchen. I'll give you a personal introduction to a barrel of oysters. This way. And fortune. Yeah. Stay away from Iris. Who says so? I say so. Here's your counter. The shell's in a garbage can. And this is the oyster knife. Right. And just so as we don't misunderstand each other, I'm very serious about Iris. Very serious. Hey, look out with that knife. You understand, fortune? I got an inkling. Now get to work and shut them moisters. It takes me a few minutes to pull the dull-bladed oyster knife two inches out of the table where Big Barney has buried it. About this time, Ferdinand the waiter drifts in the door. Freddy's a little wispy guy who looks like the mechanical rabbit the greyhounds chase at the dog track. A thousand cherry stones! Hey! Who are you? Rocky Fortune. I'm the new oyster shucker. What happened to Harmon? Maybe he got washed out with the tide. Hey, pal, when do I get something to eat here? Didn't you get some supper? No. That Barney, no consideration. Look, I'll fix you something. Uh, I've been looking at the menu. How about the swordfish? Uh-uh. No? To my best friend, I wouldn't recommend the swordfish. Not tonight. Ferdinand? Yes, sir? Mr. Abenaki's coming in. Excuse me. Hey, Chief! Give me two double shrimp cocktails, a crab meat salad, lobster gumbo, a bowl of Boston, a bowl of Manhattan, and a bucket of lobsters. What do you got out there? Rotary luncheon? No, just Mr. Abenaki. Take a peek through the kitchen door, and Mr. Abenaki is sitting on two chairs at once and is still lapping over on all sides. Barney and Ferdinand are hovering around him like a pair of hummingbirds trying to neck with a navy blimp. I make a resolution to quit eating French fried potatoes and go back to unbuttoning oysters and remove their overcoats. It's lovely work, so I strike up a conversation. 
There's nobody in the pantry but me and the oyster, so I got no choice. You think you've got troubles? Hmm. I'm the one that ought to get stewed. You got it soft. You don't have to worry what happens if your lady friend decides to clam up. All you gotta do is just lay there, that's all. If you wanna make an impression on the dame, all you gotta do is whip up a pearl. That's a, holy smokes, a real live pearl. It's a real live pearl sitting in the middle of that oyster staring up at me with its one beautiful beady eye. I'm figuring on calling little Arthur the book to place a fin on the nose of Pearl Diver in the 5th of Belmont when I open the next oyster. So help me another pearl. I haven't had a run of luck like this since I busted up the floating crap game in Doherty's garage. So I leave the stake out and shoot it all. Another oyster. Another pearl. Come on, baby. Papa needs a new necklace. One after another, and every little darling loaded. I'm trembling as I hit number 10, 11, and 12. 12 great big fat pearls in my hot little hand, and all mine. Just to make sure, I stash him away in my pocket quick as Ferdinand the waiter comes in the door. Two dozen special oysters for Mr. Abenaki. Buddy boy, I never could see nothing special about no oysters. It's like eating a clammy handshake. Get him up and I'll pick him up on the way out. The specials for Mr. Abenaki come out of this barrel. And don't suck him. He likes them open at the table. He says it improves the flavor. Yes, sir, Sergeant. <laughs> Unfortunately, Barney has forgotten to tell me this, and I've already separated Mr. Abenaki's special oysters from their shells. Now, to me, the difference between a couple of oysters is something that can only interest another oyster. So I fill up a plate from the regular barrel. This, it turns out, is a mistake. Through the doors, I hear Mr. Abenaki sounding off like the bullhorn on a big mo. And Ferdinand comes flying back like a scared pigeon. What's happened? What's happened to the special oysters? Who is responsible for this? Please, Mr. Abenaki. I paid for special oysters shipped in just for me, and what do I get? Call these oysters these miserable, scrawny blobs. What happened to Mr. Abenaki's oysters? You, fortune. Me? What happened to the specials? It was just a little mistake. A mistake. A mistake with my oysters. Please, Mr. Abenaki. Butch, what happened? I opened them first. Nobody told me any different. You hear that? He opened my oysters. All that flavor gone. Gone forever. What is this? A federal case? You feather-headed idiot. Now, wait a minute. Butch, and you lame brain, you apologize to Mr. Abenaki. Okay, okay. To him, I'll apologize. But you, you muscle-headed bum. Well, you scrawny knucklehead, I ought to pry you apart like a charter clam. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Mr. Barney, I'm sure it was an honest mistake. Why don't you give him another chance? You shut up and keep out of this. Hey, who do you think you're talking to? You ought to wash your mouth out with soap before you talk to a lady. Fortune, you're fired. Oh, no. Please, Mr. Barney. You keep out of this. Take him up front and pay him off. Iris fishes me a couple of bucks out of the register. And I can see she's a little sorry for me, which makes me feel very pleasant indeed. Here you are, Mr. Fortune. I wish it was more. Oh, well. Easy come, easy go. I just wish I was staying on, though, so I could see you again. It took a lot of courage to stand up to Barney like that. I still have the oyster knife. I wish there was something that I could do. How about splitting a steak with me tonight, huh? After all, I just got fired. And I shouldn't be left alone with a knife. Well, I suppose it's all right. Meet you when you get off. Is it a date? All right, Rocky. I'm off at nine. I figure bounced a knot on the head for the day. Twelve pearls and a beautiful girl. This is better than the Daily Double. It's about 8.45 when I head out the back door. It's a very cozy neighborhood. You could sometimes go as far as a block without stumbling over a drunk or being mugged for a pair of clean socks. 
So I'm not too surprised when an arm whips around my neck and I cease breathing until further notice. Don't say a word. Who can talk? This ain't no briar pipe sticking in your back. Okay, okay. Hand them over. Anything in particular? You know what I'm talking about. Hand them over. Now, Mac, this may make me seem a little slow, but I haven't got the slightest idea what you're talking about. The pearls, wise guy, the pearls. You got them. Oh, then. Didn't your mother ever tell you it ain't polite to shortstop? Now pass them over. They're mine. I found them. Okay, okay. Hand them over. Over my dead body. That can be arranged. All right, wise guy, I'll give you a quick five to hand them over. One? Hey, you're kidding, ain't you? Two? Okay, okay, I got them right here. Three? Right here. Hey, hey they're gone. Four. Honest, I put them in his pocket, see? I said four. Look, look, there's a hole in it. Look, I can wiggle my finger through it. Five? If you don't believe me, look for yourself. Yeah. Hey, hold still. I'm ticklish. You're clean, all right. Listen, punk, I'll give you a chance. You got 12 hours to hand those pearls over. But I lost them, honest. You lost them, you find them. Remember, 12 hours or we'll fit you for a brand new satin-lined overcoat with silver handles. And just to show you we ain't kidding. About 20 minutes later, the world slows down to a gentle spiral. Some other bum has rolled me for 38 cents and change, a subway token, and my shoes. I paddle around to the avenue with my bare feet, and I find Iris waiting in front of a drugstore looking like Hurricane Barbara, about to hit the Atlantic coast from Block Island to Cape Hatteras. Rocky, this is not the kind of a neighborhood where a girl likes to wait for... What's the matter? You're limping. I stepped on a live cigar butt. Well, you're barefoot. Where are we going, to a square dance? Look, honey, I'm afraid our date's off. Why? I got to attend a funeral. Whose? Mine. What are you talking about? There seems to be a difference of opinion about some pearls. I told the guy I found them, but he couldn't see it my way. You found some pearls? Yes. Where? Where else? In an oyster. Twelve of them. You found twelve pearls in one oyster? No, no. One each in a dozen. How's that for luck? Nobody's that lucky. But now I can't find them. I got a hole in my pocket. I must have dropped them. Oh, that's terrible. You don't know the half of it. The guy who just shrugged me gave me 12 hours to cough up the pearls or else. A particularly nasty else. Oh. Oh, then we've got to start looking for them. Right now. Right now, I'd rather look for some shoes. A guy can get athlete's foot this way. We head back into the 50 Fathoms clam house to try to find the pearls. I'm cutting my bare feet to ribbons on broken clamshells. We go through the sawdust in the pantry a spoonful at a time, but we draw a blank. No pearls. Up to now, I've been thinking I'm just lucky. But slowly, I realize I've been playing with marked oysters. I figure them pearls must be hot as a tin roof in August. Rocky, what happens if we don't find them? They might kill you. Yeah. I was thinking that was a possibility, too. Well, where else could you have dropped them? Was there anything on the floor, a, a garbage can or something? Wait a minute. There was. That little barrel that Mr. Abenaki's oysters came in. It was right by this stool. Maybe the pearls dropped in it. But the barrel's gone, too. Of course. They pick it up at night and take it back to the oyster boat. Can you find out which boat? I know. I find the receipt every day. It's the, it's the Polly B at Pier 22. Oh, Rocky, do you think the pearls could still be in the barrel? Well, I got a hasty feeling I'd better find out. Anyway, if Abenaki's oysters came from that boat, then so do the pearls. Rocky, I'm going with you. Now, look, honey, it's going to be dangerous and dark down on that dock. You'll be there. I know. That's what frightens me. Well, come on. Let's head for Pier 22. And if I don't find the pearls, well, at least it's a good place to jump off. front to Pier 22, but I keep going. I figure it's like a horse. If I pull up lame now, I'm a sense to get shot. Pier 22 looks like the spot where Henry Hudson dropped his anchor on the first trip. There's a crap game going on in the dock office. We wait until somebody makes a four the hard way and slips through in the confusion. The oyster boat is halfway down the pier, and we go aboard. Don't chip on them ropes. Isn't that the barrel right there? That's it. That's it, all right. I'll tip it up to the light. Empty as a pocket before payday. Oh, Rocky. I wonder where the elephants go to die. 
Rocky. Rocky, listen. Yeah. Somebody must have broken up the crap game. They're coming this way. What are we going to do? That guy who put the arm on me is with him. You see the guy with no neck? Yeah. Come on, we better hide. Well, where? Down the hatch behind us. I can't jump down there. Not in this first. In it or out of it. Here you go. Oh. Oh, it's dark down here. Look out. Here I come. Now, keep quiet, baby, and maybe we'll get out of this thing in one piece. Let's get going. Hey, cast off the bar line. What is it? What's happening? Did you bring your toothbrush? A toothbrush? What for? I can only think of one thing to say at this point. What? Bon voyage. between an oversized shoebox and the Staten Island Ferry. It would probably rock like crazy in a bathtub, and by the time we're through the narrows and into the lower bay, Iris has turned a tasteful tone of green which unfortunately clashes with her purple dress. Oh, Rocky, I'm afraid I'm going to die. No, you're not. Oh, man, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to die. Oh. Somebody will hear you. I don't care. There's the boy. Moran, the boy. What happened? We're stopping. Maybe we hit a red light. Will you men get the nail on the side? Come on, hurry up. What is it? Oysters? I don't know. I better boost you up so you can sneak a peek. You ready? Mm -hmm. Well? It's a barrel, Rocky. They pulled it in with a net. Rocky, it's got a flag on it. Let me down. Uh, I got it now. Just like Prohibition. Someone on an incoming line that dumps the stuff over. And this boat picks it up. Yeah, and delivers it to the 50 Fathoms Clam House. What a way to sneak in pearls inside an oyster. And if some jerk opens one by mistake, he just thinks he's lucky. Can you imagine a guy stupid enough to think he'd really find a pearl in an... Uh, um, you read any good books lately? Rocky, it's... It's a smuggling racket. All right! Baby, you're even smart. That's right. I could kiss you. I have my eyes closed and my mouth puckered when the roof falls in. And I find myself kissing a 30-pound flounder, which is part of a load of fish dumped in on top of us. We're standing up to the neck in fresh-caught ocean fish in season. I pick a herring out of my ears and look around for Iris. And once again, I get that funny feeling. You know, that yearning to take her out of all of this. The Polly B makes it back to the pier in Blue Ribbon time. And when the coast is clear, Iris and I climb out of the fish and shake off the scales. I've got a smelt in my pocket and a certain air about me. Ooh, I can't even stand myself. I think it's invigorating. Uh, Rocky, you know it's clear. You got the pearls by mistake. Yeah, those oysters were meant for Mr. Abenaki. They're delivered specially for him. It must be, Rocky. So, what do we do now? Well, honey, as much as I hate disturbing a man at his meal, Mr. Abenaki leaves me no choice. He eats all day. <laughs> wander through town with seaweed in her hair and a strong suspicion that barnacles have set in. So Iris heads up to her apartment to change. I figure I might as well head over to the clam house to do a little digging on my own. It's midnight now and Ferdinand's in the kitchen when I get there. Hey, what's happened? You jump off the ferry? Never mind. Listen, has Abenaki still got his nose in a feed bag? He's on his demitas. Demitas? Yes, he has to watch his weight. Look, Ferdinand, about those special oysters. Mr. Abenaki never has them open in the kitchen, right? Right. He's a very particular man. He wants to make sure all the flavor's locked in. I'll bet he does. Ferdinand, this may come as a shock to you, but something tells me Mr. Abenaki is playing puss in the corner with the United States Customs. Not to mention the cops from the country where the stuff was originally heisted. The stuff? The pearls. I found a dozen of them in his oysters. I can't figure out where they went to, though. You lost them? Yeah, to a hole in my pocket. I was leaning over the counter right here. Now, they could have rolled along, but I I didn't find them on the floor. They should have dropped right down here like... 
Who put that bowl of soup on the stool? I did. That's Mr. Abenaki's oyster stew. I always leave it there until he's ready for it. You do? Yes. Did Mr. Abenaki have oyster stew tonight? Sure. He has a couple of bowls with each meal. Ferdinand, I gotta make some phone calls. So the cops are a squad car in the Bellevue Hospital for a stomach pump. You mean Mr. Abenaki is a smuggler? Somebody around here is, and he looks like it. I'll let the cops nail it down. Well, that's too bad, isn't it? About Abenaki, why? He deserves what he's got coming to him. Yes, but I'm afraid you don't. Now, please put up your hands, Mr. Fortune. You see, we wouldn't want the police around. The clam house has to think of its reputation. But your gun is loaded. Barney! Sure, boss. Take this gun and keep him covered. With pleasure. Then it's you. I suppose it is. Barney, uh, could Captain Duran arrange a special trip on the Polly B? <laughs> Easy. Well, we'll have to be careful where we drop you. It wouldn't do to spoil the oyster bed. Mr. Abenaki wouldn't like it. Couldn't you just maroon me on a desert island? Please, Mr. Fortune, be practical. Now, we're going out through the kitchen door. Barney, you go first. Sure thing, boss. Coast is Barney! Barney, what happened? Probably this. Sure, how's Barney? Oh, he's out cold. What did you hit him with? A frozen flounder. You know, it was Ferdinand all the time? The waiter? Sure, he got to the oysters before Abenaki. That reminds me. Where are you going? To call the cops. I got to tend to something. Mr. Abenaki, you had an oyster stew early this evening. Uh, I did. Uh, please pass the ketchup. Look, I, I don't want to disturb you, but there were a dozen pearls in that stew. Oh? I thought the oysters were somewhat gritty. Now, we've got to get those pearls back wherever they are. Is that all? You've got them. I, I suppose I have. In the midsection. More or less. I'm going to send for a stomach pump right away. Oh, oh that won't be necessary. I, I have them in my vest pocket. Uh, yeah. Are these the pearls? You mean you didn't eat them? Goodness, no. I almost lost a filling on the first one, though. I thought I was just lucky. You're sure these pearls belong to you? I'm positive, Mr. Abenaki. Well, if they're yours, take them by all means. Oh, and uh, young man. Yeah? Ask somebody to bring me another piece of pie. <laughs> Somebody else gets the pie. Me? I'm in the mood to relax. The Rover boys are safe in the work and refrigerated. The 12 pearls have come home to Papa. And I'm alone with Iris, who's wearing a flannel skirt and a little boy's shirt, which never looks like that on no little boy. Well, Rocky? Honey, I think maybe you saved my life. Would you like to claim a little reward? What kind of reward? A come here. Uh-uh. Closer. uh uh-uh. Baby, I've got something for you. Here. The pearls. Well, honey. Hmm? I've got something for you. Yeah? What? A property receipt from the U.S. Customs Department. You. You. You're a... Cop. Good night, Rocky. Good night. Sinatra as that footloose and fancy-free young man known as Rocky Fortune. Others in the cast included Lynn Allen, Jack Crucian, Jack Nestle, Lou Merrill, and William Orner. Andrew C. Love directed. Eddie King speaking. Now here's Frank Sinatra to tell you about next week's transcribed adventure. you with somebody else. The next week I wake up married to a dame and I don't even know her name. I'm living like a Maharaja and I'm insured for a hundred grand. Double indemnity. 
Next week, then, tune in again when Frank Sinatra returns as Rocky Fortune. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Rocky Fortune, on Tuned to Yesterday from October 6, 1953, on NBC. The first episode of the series featuring Frank Sinatra, part of NBC's Tuesday night lineup at 9.30. The show would last on air through March of 1954. You are listening to an hour of old-time radio adventure. On Tuned to Yesterday, I'm your host, Mark Lavonier. Now time for an episode of The Adventures of Frank Race, starring radio actor Paul Dubov. On the silver screen, he was mostly seen in bit parts until television came to pass. But during the year of this broadcast, he was heard in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Escape, and yours truly, Johnny Deller. In character parts, he plays the lead next from October 18, 1949, in The Adventure of the Diver's Loot. The Adventures of Frank Race, starring Paul Dubuff. The war changed many things the face of the earth, and the people on it. Before the war, Frank Race worked as an attorney, but he traded his law books for the cloak and dagger of the OSS. And when it was over, his former life was over, too. Adventure had become his business. The Adventures of Frank Race. And now we join Frank Race for The Adventure of the Diver's Loot. London, under a heavy rush of cumulonimbus clouds, scudding thunderheads that looked as though they might knock off your head at any moment. I just left the embankment and was hurrying across Westminster Bridge when... Hey, Race! Race, wait a second! It was Mark Donovan running to catch me, and for some reason the sight of a New York taxi driver of foot in London seemed incongruous enough to rate a grin. Uh, uh, well, I, I give up. What's so funny? Because the guy has to lope like a high-boat bank to to come up with you. Sorry, you Mark. I was just thinking how different this is compared to ramming a cab along uh, 42nd Street. Uh, it's so different. Just had to hack my way through a jam. It was worse than going for the X's on fight night. That damn Trafalgar Square. Slow down. You're wheezing like a sump pump. Uh, it ought to be. I even... I, I almost forgot. I've been pulled this marathon because a guy wanted to see us. Personality named Rhodes. Lawrence Rhodes? Yeah, yeah. Very pip pip and cheery old. Wants to see you pronto. Offices in Eaton Square, is no. I can't take on another assignment. We should be getting back to New York. But I'll see Rhodes anyway. Everything about Lawrence Rhodes was thin. His weight, his hair, the wispy line of his very blonde mustache. He looked as though he might be the operator of an exclusive ladies' shop. Actually, he served as British representative for Acme Indemnity. And during the war, he had cracked a Normandy beachhead as leader of a tough commando unit. Decent of you to come, Race. We feel it's imperative that we have an American in on this, since it's an American venture to begin with. Well, and you... when it's a case of children losing their lives... Oh, forgive me. What were you saying? I was going to say that... What's this about kids losing their lives? A little French lad... Killed aboard the salvage vessel. Rhodes, I'm afraid you're going to have to start this from the beginning. Of course. Old habit of mine, assuming people have previous knowledge of what I'm talking about. Forgive me. All this stems from a salvage operation just across the channel. But before we discuss it further, I want you to meet someone. He left me for a few minutes and came back with a husky-looking man of about 50. The man he introduced as Charles Menefee. Mr. Menefee can tell you much more about this matter than I can, Race. He's in charge of the operation. It's a clean-up job. My company secured the contract for dragging the harbor off Sherburn. We've been picking up the residue of stuff that was sunk there during the war, particularly after D-Day. I happened to be on the vessel in question when this affair took place. Besides the mishap to the boy, we lost a diver by the name of Joe Donner. Just disappeared, leaving nothing but broken signal and airlines. How old was the boy, and how did he happen to be aboard? He was 12, a waterfront kid that had been made a sort of a mascot by the men. Apparently, they smuggled him on the vessel for this voyage. It was all pretty much of a mix-up, and no one seemed to know anything about it. That brings up an important point, Race. Acme is indemnifying Menifee's company against all liability, 
And if this youngster died on that vessel, then we'll assume our full obligation. But we should know if he really did die on the boat. Your opinion on the report will decide that for us. What sort of accident was it? That's the peculiar part of it. The thing probably can't be called an accident at all. You see, the boy was shot to death. Menifee and I left Rhodes' office together and stood talking on the street while waiting for cabs. I was to fly across the channel that evening. He would meet me in Cherbourg on the following day. And as we planned this, a car sidled up to the curb. A gleaming new sedan with the rakishness of a destroyer stopped directly alongside us and a quiet voice spoke from the rear seat. Don't you guys try rushing off anywhere. You'll develop more holes in a bum alibi. From the look of him, he might have been an usher at your sister's wedding. He even had the carnation on his lapel. With the manner of a maestro handling a rare fiddle, he lifted the submachine gun he'd been holding in his lap. Get your hooks behind your head and get in here with me. Should be an enjoyable ride. It's a beautiful car. A most beautiful car. Ain't bad for a foreign job. Okay, Connie. But take it easy. We don't want to have to brush off any nosy cops. Now you're being discreet. In this country, they object to people who carry artillery. We carry what we like anywhere we go. Nothing like self-confidence. We haven't met before, have we? I never forget a face. We ain't met. I'm Frank Race. My friend's name is... I know your friend's name. It's Menifee. Hadn't realized I was so renowned. How about your identity? Me? I'm Freddie Troy, an independent voter. I run a little business of my own. How is business? Don't pay like it used to. Especially over here. Guy's got to take what he can get. Uh, well, from the looks of this car... Menifee, I'll give fair odds that the owner of this car hasn't the slightest idea as to who's driving it at this moment. You're a real hep personality, Race. Uh, do you mind telling us what this is all about? No, I don't mind. I'm taking you out to the country for a ride. A real old-fashioned ride. But what for? Some people in Sherbert, they think you're in the way. So I'm taking care of you. And when I take care of somebody, I do it right. He let his own words send him a little, just enough to relax the vigilance that had been in his attitude. For an instant, the nose of the submachine gun wandered upward away from Menifee and myself, so I lunged! <coughs> I didn't have to yell at Menifee. He was already on top of the driver as the four of us strained... Now look what you've done. I'll murder you. All right, Troy. Now, here's a little payment in kind. Uh, race. The machine gun. I'll, I'll get him. Knock him cold. Are you all right, Race? I think so. Hey, you deflected that gun upward just in time. He'd have killed a dozen people. Where's Troy? Troy? He must have got lost in the crowd. Well, conditions are getting better in London. Last time I was here, I had to dodge bombs. This time, it was just machine gun bullets. Cherbourg is still a disabled war veteran, showing gaunt open spaces and bombed-out buildings as mute testimony of the travail she endured. I met Menifee again at the Creon, one of the larger hotels. With him was a man and woman he introduced as Jim and Sandra Whalen. Jim Whalen worked as Menifee's head driver. He must have seen too many George Raft pictures, judging from the way he persisted in twirling a keychain all the time we talked. The woman, slim, young, red-headed, rated seconds on any man's glance. Turned up anything yet, Race? Nothing. But I have Mark Donovan out looking for leads. You haven't met him. He's tops when it comes to prying out clues. I want you to know I'm suspending all operations for the time being. The local police seem pretty well stopped by it. The four of us sat in the lobby and watched it begin to rain outside. The conditions had turned the city gray and dismal looking. Succumbing to the effect of the weather, Menifee and Jim Whalen presently left to take on a few drinks. Sandra Whalen immediately crinkled her nose at me. It's about time we had a chance to talk to each other. I get pretty tired of hearing nothing but diving and salvage. Oh? What would you prefer to discuss? You and me. Somehow I get the feeling that that could become rather complicated. Oh, I'm counting on it. You mind? What's the matter, bored? I was, until you came along. But I'm not bored now. I'm not bored at all. Sorry, Ducky. 
There are certain conditions under which I never move in, and this seems to involve all of them. Oh? Well, you better tell me about it. You see, I've always been led to believe I was rather attractive. You're most attractive. But there happens to be a guy in the background, a guy by the name of Jim Whalen. Who also happens to be my brother. Your brother? If you doubt it, go and ask him. I'd look pretty silly doing that. No, I'm more than willing to take your word for it. And now, would you begin all over again? Begin what? Those ideas you were advancing, those very provocative ideas concerning us. Uh-uh. I've given you too much of a lead as it is. Let's not waste time with regrets. Isn't there another spot, perhaps a little music? I know just the spot. Come on, we can slip away before they get back. Cherbourg no longer seemed gray and dreary. For me, it had suddenly assumed the atmosphere of a Mardi Gras, a mummer's parade. But at the door to the hotel, there came an interruption. Going somewhere, Ace? That's rather obvious, isn't it? Sandra, this is Mark Donovan. Hello, Mark. Mm. <laughs> I don't blame you for going somewhere, but I'm afraid I gotta part you two nice people. Get lost, Mark. I'm sure that whatever you have in mind can wait. Look, Race, you will probably want to flog me from here to Paris, but it won't wait. It's a red-hot break. It's got to be handled now. Go with him, Race. We can make it later. Shall we say tomorrow evening? You're a very understanding person. I'm a very persistent person. See you later, Race. Marcus, this lead of yours had better be good. It's good, chum. Let's go. Where? Spot call a body book. It ain't the Krillion, of course. Krillion. Yeah, like I said, it ain't the Krillion, but it has its points. It definitely has its points. <laughs> uh, ain't this something, Race? Makes you forget all about the rain outside, huh? Who are we going to talk to? Yeah, that table in the corner. Guy and a dame. He's the American I was telling you about. The one that gave me the knockdown to him. Look, I, uh, I know you just left the pip, but uh, ain't this girl something? She was wearing a black suit and a beret. She had dark eyes and honey-colored hair. She was smoking a cigarette in a long holder, and she looked like something Renoir would have put on canvas. We went over and Mark made us known to one another, identifying the girl as Annette, the man as Phil Benson. We had drinks and began a casual conversation. Benson turned out to be a paving contractor, dickering with the city of Cherbourg for some of its road rebuilding work. Well, it's kind of tough. They don't want to give it to anyone but a Frenchman. I don't blame them in a way, but I could certainly save them a lot of money on know-how. Annette, Mark Donovan tells me you know something about what occurred on that salvage boat last week. Yes, Reis. I know something. Wouldn't want to tell me about it, would you? No, Reis. I will only speak of what I know to the man who's in charge of the boat. Is it a question of money? Frankly, yes. I could get it for you. No. No, I will only speak to that man himself. The man called Menafi. All right. We'll make it tonight. Sweet Jay at the Creon at 8 o'clock. Is that all right? Yes, Reis. That is all right. Sweet Jay at the Creon happened to be the apartment Mark and I were occupying. And I had Menifee there at 7.30. He came in with a serious face and a morose attitude. Took a couple of drinks to bring him to the point of unburdening his mind. It's Sandra, Race. I, I don't suppose you have any idea that she and I are engaged. Engaged? Yeah. No, I didn't have any such idea. Sandra didn't say anything about it this afternoon. Yeah, Sandra's like that. He's restless. And always on the lookout for excitement, but, but I have hopes that she'll settle down. Of course, I'm sure she will. It... That must be our caller. Hello, Ray. Come in, Annette. This is Mr. Menifee. Hello, Annette. Ray says you have some information for me. Yes, Monsieur Menifee. I have three things to tell you. First, that I consider you a murderer. Second, that I am the mother of a dead child. And third, that I now intend to kill you with this pistol. Annette! Menifee was down, but I couldn't tell how badly he'd been hurt. I was too involved with a twisting, writhing woman whose intent was to send more bullets into his body. Let me go. Let me go. You little idiot. You're not solving anything by making a play like this. Give me that gun. No. Give me that gun. No. 
I'm sorry. You left me no alternative. Now, if you're smart, you'll get out of here. Your police don't like people who use guns. You're not going to hold me? No, get going. Very well, then. Merci. Please. Better stay put, Menifee, till I get some help here. Doesn't seem too bad. You saved my life by grabbing her the way you did. She had me fooled right down to the ground. Where were you hit? It seems to be near the shoulder. Here. I'll pack it, then I'll get you a doctor. Oh, no, doctor. I'll take care of this myself. You've got to have a doctor, Menifee. It would be terrible. No, I'll take care of it myself. Bring in a doctor and you bring in the police. I've had enough publicity on this thing. We're likely to need the police. That girl might try this again. You can take care of that for me. I'll, I'll find a persuader that I'm not at fault. I'm doing all I can to clean up the situation. But no doctors. No police. There was no doubt but that Annette would be in hiding. The next morning, Mark and I looked up Phil Benson, the roving paving contractor. Yeah, I know where she is. But why should I tell you guys? So you can make trouble for her? Look, don't be a dub, will you? We ain't gonna give her no grief. Grace wants to help her. That's right, Benson. I give you my word. All right. But I wouldn't want to give her a bum steer. She's a widow going through a bad time. And I'm nuts about it. He took us to a small flat over a wine shop on a back street. Here, Annette received us casually, as though nothing unusual had happened. But the moment I mentioned Menifee, her eyes filled with storm. You may as well know. If I get another chance at him, I shall try the same thing again. But why? You're not sure that he caused the death of your son? My son died on that man's boat. For me, that is enough. Take it easy, will you, baby? Grace is only trying to find out what really happened. He's only trying to help you. I can promise that Menifee won't go to the police if you'll agree to let him alone. Hear that, baby? Why don't you relax and learn to live again? Give a guy like me a chance to make things different. Oh, let me alone. I, I don't want to talk Look, about it. You've got to talk about it, baby, for my sake. You know how I feel about you. Just give me time to make one of these paving deals and, well, things will be different, that's all. Oh, please let me alone. She stalked out of the room and I realized the futility of trying to deal with a woman stricken as she had been. Benson looked stopped. If I could only get a break so I could take her away from here. Are you having any luck? Not with the city of Sherbrooke. They just don't listen to me. And I could do their cement paving cheaper than anyone on the continent. But it looks as though I've got about as much chance as a plugged bullseye. Yeah, uh, stick with it, chum. Things will work out. They have a way of doing that. We'll see you later, Benson. Hi, Ray. Remember me? Hello, Sandra. Why aren't you going to invite me in? Of course. Or are you reluctant to receive a lady at this late now? Can I fix you a drink? I've already had a drink. I've already had several drinks. Well, you're a big girl now. They shouldn't hurt you. I thought we had a date tonight. Date? You know we did. Well, something came up, something I couldn't avoid. Menifee talked to you, didn't he? Told you I was engaged to him. Well, aren't you? He told me he talked to you. You know, you had me fooled. I didn't think you'd let a thing like that slow you down. A lot of things slow me down. That's just one of them. Big, virtuous man, aren't you? Oh, I hate virtuous men. That should simplify everything, then. should, but it doesn't. Because after I decided I hated you, I couldn't stop thinking about you. So I got drunk. You make a very lovely drunk. Dory, then I dare you to do something. I dare you to put your arms around me and say that. You think I'm not tempted? Go on, Ray. Put your arms around me and say I make a very lovely drunk. I'll make you another drink instead. Sit down, Ducky. You're a little unstrung. As a matter of fact, I'm getting a little unstrung myself. You're a fool, right? I know it. At this moment, I'm probably the biggest fool in Sherwood. In fact, I'm surprising the very devil out of myself. I'm keeping this light, Ducky. Just enough glory juice to give a taste. You think Menifee's worth being royal to? Well, he isn't. 
isn't worth it at all. Here, refresh yourself. Then you'd better go home. Do you know why Menifee suspended salvage operations? Do you know why he's not letting anybody get aboard that boat? I haven't the slightest idea, Ducky. Because they have gold aboard. A fortune in gold. Gold? That sounds a little fantastic, Sandra. Mm, it's not so fantastic. They found a plane on the harbor bottom while they were grappling. A Royal Air Force plane that had been shot down during the war. They'd been carrying gold to occupy France to pay agents who wouldn't work for paper money. Yes. Yes, they did that during the war. That's why the child's dead. He happened to be aboard that day, and someone shot him to keep him quiet. And that's why that diver turned up missing, Joe Donner. Doesn't add up, Sandra. If it did, why didn't Menifee just take the gold and clear out? <laughs> because he can't find it. <laughs> that's the joker. It's somewhere on the boat, but he can't find it. Either the boy or, or that diver hid it before they were murdered. So he's looked everywhere for that money. But he's been looking for the chest it was found in. <laughs> well, if I could get aboard... Just how drunk are you, Sandra? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty drunk, Dave. But I'm not too drunk. I'm not too drunk. If you could get aboard, do you think you know where it is? Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Let's go out to that vessel, Sandra. Let's go out. Just for the ducks of it. <laughs> Can you see well enough to hold your course, Mark? You kidding? I ain't seeing my way. I'm feeling it. Oh, what a night. There she is. Cut the engine. We're going to bump. Oh, brother, what a break. We hit almost alongside the ladder. Get the bow around, Mark. All right. All right, Sandra. Uh, watch your step, will you? Take the stairway to Buckingham Palace. Gosh, we made it. There's a light after. Come on. You know... Could be walking right into something here, something rough and tough. We can stop right now, pal. You've already walked into it. It was Freddie Troy, the killer I'd met in London. In the light shafting past an open bulkhead, I could see that under one arm he cradled a bag of some sort, while at the same time he held a gun on us. Well, well, that ain't the chum I met in England. You go around buttoning all kinds of things, don't you? You don't seem as well equipped as you were last time, Troy. Then it was a Tommy gun. Now it's just a forty-five. That's enough for this job. Get back against the wall. Gracie's going to shoot us. How'd you guess it, sister? That's far enough, punk. You mean me? Yeah, you. Now, folks, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Mark, how'd you get that hand in your pocket? <laughs> it wasn't reaching for cigars, Junior. You had to do it. It was him or us. Oh, lady, he can put music to them lyrics. Oh, look, that bag. He dropped it and... Spilling gold coins. We'll have a look at that later. First, let's see if we can do anything to Troy. Okay, Rish, but I'm afraid we're just wasting our time. Mark was right. It was a case of too much sea and too much darkness. So we turned back to the lighted cabin. And here... It's Watchman. He's dead. Shot by Troy. Yeah. Oh, I guess I won't have to feel so bad. Grace, look. Look where the coins have been hidden. What, what do you know? In a fire hose. But this is only part of it, a small part. Oh, we're too late. They've been carrying it away. Yes, they've been carrying it away. But I've got a small hunch that I know where we might find it. <laughs> they were both at the flat. And I got the feeling that he'd been talking to her again about going away. From the look of her, she hadn't been too responsive to his words. Hello, Grace. What is it you want this time? Money, Annette. A lot of money. Money that caused the death of your child. Money that killed my boy? Yeah, but who would have it here? Benson would. Wouldn't you, Benson? Me? What are you talking about? I'm talking about a paving contractor calling himself Benson, who's really a deep-sea diver by the name of Joe Donner. How long have you known this man, Annette? Only a few days Yes. He came to you so he could keep in touch with what was going on. It makes a grim thought, Benson, courting the kid's mother after what happened. You're crazy. You tripped yourself in a couple of ways. For one thing, no real paving man would say cement when he actually meant concrete. But you were authentic enough when you mentioned a bullseye today, because that's the term a lot of divers use for the eyepieces in their helmets. You and Freddie Troy were in this together, weren't you, Donner? 
You were the diver who brought up the chest of coins, which you knew would be confiscated by the government. So you took advantage of the excitement and hid the stuff. And you murdered that boy because he happened to see you. Then you made it look as though you'd been killed yourself. So you could hide out and pick up the coins later. Oh, if you could prove this. Ask him to open that bag he has at his feet, Annette. I'm not opening anything. I'm just going out of here. Don't go for that gun, Annette. I know you've got one, but don't go for it. I'll... You, you stopped me. You let him get away. He won't go far. Not in France. And the bag's still here, baby. He didn't get the I bag. I could have killed him. And you stopped me. And right now, you hate me for it. But after a while, you'll be glad I did. After a long while, you'll be very glad. <laughs> Adventures of Frank Race, starring Paul Dubove with Tony Barrett as Mark Donovan, comes to you from Hollywood. Others heard in tonight's cast were Lillian Bayef, Wilms Herbert, Paul McVeigh, Michael Ann Barrett, and Herbert Butterfield. This series is written and directed by Buckley Angel and Joel Murcott. The music is composed and played by Ivan Dittmar. Be sure to be with us again this time next week for another dramatic chapter in The Adventures of Frank Race. Art Gilmore speaking. This is a Bruxelles production. The Adventures of Frank Race, on tuned to yesterday from October 18, 1949. And that closes the Sour of Adventure, on tuned to yesterday. Be sure to be with us next time for more great programs from Radio's Golden Age. Until our next hour together, I'm Mark Levonier. It's been a pleasure.